Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Your faithfulness should always be to God and to His Word. And if you find out that I've taught something that is false, I love that you would defend me, but I would rather have you say, you know what, I love Robert, I think he teaches, I think he teaches great stuff, but on this one particular thing, I think he's wrong. I would rather have you say that. What exactly happened to Jesus between his death and his resurrection? We want to study exactly what the scriptures say about this period of time because there are many deceptive teachings out there. So stay with us as we dive into the truth of God's word and also receive an important warning about misplacing our faith in those who teach without checking out exactly what they're teaching. Stay with us for Practical Christian Living. Here comes Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Today we're going to talk about the things that happened to Jesus between the time that he died upon the cross and resurrected. And there are several passages that help us to understand the importance of this. There are cults that teach that certain things happened during that time that are not biblical at all. And there are some false teachings from churches that are not cults that teach that some things happened during that time that are wrong as well. And it's really important for us to rightly divide the word of truth. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent, this is to all believers, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. There's a right and a wrong way to divide his word. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets are going to arise and they are going to deceive many. So there are many deceivers. And as time goes on, as we march closer and closer towards the end of the world, there are more deceivers that go out in the world. And so you have to be keenly aware that that is the case. And Jesus said again in Matthew 24, 4, take heed that you are not deceived. You, first of all, have the responsibility that you are not going to be deceived, that you are like the Bereans in that you receive the word of God with all joy. Receiving from someone is powerful, but you search the scriptures to see whether or not those things are true. And I would say that with teachings that I give you as well, with anyone that you consider to be a solid teacher. If you have a question mark, if you go, eh, I'm not quite sure that's true. Hey, search the scriptures. And if anybody ever says to you, don't you, you know, go against my teaching, you know, don't go against God's anointed, which is the main thing that they'll say, then you know you got problems. Because anybody worth their salt as a teacher understands that they could be wrong about something and they understand that people need to be able to check them out. You guys need to receive it with joy, be open to what God would speak to you, but make sure to search the scriptures and to see whether or not these things are true. In 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. There are going to be even deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons that will be taught in the last days. Did I read you guys 1 Tim uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3-5? through 5? Let me read it again just in case I didn't. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because of itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers 
and they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to fables. This is talking about the church. The church deliberately turns away from the truth because they like a message that they're getting and they turn to fables instead of the truth about what is in the word of God. And one of the things that happens is that you hear someone that maybe teeters on false teachings. And by the way, when I say someone is teaching false teachings, I'm not saying that they're a false teacher. There are false teachers and I have no problem saying that person is a false teacher and giving their name out. I have no problem with that. But when you say someone teaches a false teaching, they're either deceived or they're doing it deliberately. If they're doing it deliberately, they would be a false teacher. But there are things that people teach. As I said earlier, hey, there's nobody that teaches the things 100% right. When I get up into heaven, I'm sure that I'm going to learn some of the positions that I held and some of the things that I taught were wrong. That doesn't make me a false teacher. That makes me a genuine teacher who taught some things wrong from time to time. And if I am hanging on to something that is a false teaching and there's ways that you can identify false teachings, if you're hanging on to that, then you really need to examine yourself on it. And here's what I think happens. I think for one thing, we listen to a certain teacher and maybe they're prone to false teachings. But we listen to them or maybe we go to one of their conferences or maybe we go to one of their healing crusades and we hear them say something and God ministers to us through them. And then we hear that there's a false teaching that they're teaching and we defend that false teaching because we've been ministered to by them. But we've got to be careful because God can use anybody to minister to us, right? God spoke in the Old Testament through a donkey, Someone said he's still speaking through donkeys today. Primarily speaks through donkeys today. But he could speak through anyone. And if he's speaking the truth, and even a false teacher is going to give 95% truth. He's not just going to be out there just spewing all false doctrine. He's going to be kind of laying a foundation, saying things that people agree with, and then all of a sudden throw in the problem. And depending on how bad the problem is, it could be devastating. If the false teaching is really, really bad, it could take you down a different line. It could have you serving a different Christ. And so your faithfulness should never be to a person. Your faithfulness should always be to God and to his word. And if you find out that I've taught something that is false, I love that you would defend me, but I would rather have you say, you know what, I love Robert. I think he teaches great stuff. But on this one particular thing, I think he's wrong. I would rather have you say that. And I would rather when someone says, this person is teaching false doctrines, I'd rather have you say, let me check it out. Instead of just defending someone because you have been ministered to by them. It is really God who ministered to you and we should not be afraid to examine anyone. If someone says that I am teaching false teachings, first of all, I wanna know, right? I would want to know. And secondly, I wouldn't have any problem if you went back and checked it out. The main reason is because I don't think that I'm teaching false teachings. The only guys that are going to have problems with you checking out what they're teaching are the guys that are teaching false doctrine. The ones that say things like, don't touch God's anointed. And by the way, that's the wrong application. Not touching God's anointed doesn't mean questioning what they teach. It means attacking them personally. Under David, it was attacking him physically. I won't lay my hand against God's anointed. He meant I won't stab him. That's literally what he meant when he said that. But I think that we could apply it today on a personal attack against someone. 
Like you're not talking about their doctrine anymore, but you turn on them and you take someone who's anointed by God and called by God and you attack them personally. You make it your own personal desire to tear someone down. You might be able to use don't touch God's anointed. But as far as looking at people's teaching and saying this teaching is wrong and this teaching isn't supported by scripture and that is a false teaching or that person has a tendency to teach false teaching, that's something the church needs to know. Otherwise, we're like the church in the last days and we have itching ears and we're stacking up for ourselves teachers that are teaching doctrines of demons. And that is the last thing that we want. We want God's word and we want the richness that we find in God's word. Unfortunately, many Christians don't do this. And as soon as you tell them someone that has ministered to them is teaching false teachings, they end up defending them. And it is such a problem. All right. So let's start in Matthew 27. We have Jesus on the cross and we want to look first at the things that happened after the event of his death. So first of all, in Matthew 27, 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled up his spirit. He put his spirit into the hand of God. How scary would it be for us to be dying and not know what was going to happen to our spirit? Jesus is the one who has led the way here. When he was on the cross, he died. What happened to him between the cross and the resurrection? Well, we know his body was taken down from the cross. We know it was prepared quickly for burial. And we know that it was buried and remained in the tomb until early on that Sunday morning when whatever happened, happened, and life came back into that body and his spirit reunited with his body and he was resurrected again. But the very first thing he did was give up his spirit into the hands of his father. Father, into your hands I give up my spirit. And when he did that, his spirit went into the hands of the father. Whatever else would happen to his spirit, the rest of that time, it would be in the hands of the Father. And this is really important. It's also really important for us to know right before he said that, he said, it is finished. The work of the cross is finished. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that Jesus redeemed us by his blood on the cross for the sins of the whole world. That is the ransom for our sins took place when he shed his blood on the cross. The Bible tells us the life is in the blood and it took the shedding of blood for there to be any forgiveness. The shedding of the blood of one who was innocent for those of us who are guilty, him taking the penalty of our death upon himself on the cross for us to be able to be saved. Now, verse 51 of Matthew 27 says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil is the curtain that separated the holies of holies from the holy place. Outside of the temple, there was an altar where animals were sacrificed. And there was also a wash basin out there, by the way. Then you would walk into the temple and you would walk into a room that would have a table of showbread that would be changed out every day. It was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It represented God being, it represented Jesus really being the bread of life. There was the candle Abra that was in there that had the, the seven different branches that were on it. It spoke of the light, really of Jesus being the light of the world ultimately. And there was an altar of incense back up against a curtain. This curtain was huge. And I didn't look up the dimensions today and I don't remember them, but it was like 35 feet tall, 30 feet wide and several inches thick. It was a huge curtain. 
And this incense altar represented the prayers of the saints. And they would put incense on that altar and it would be like our prayers filling up heaven. And then when you would go behind that curtain, not when Jesus was there, but at some other time before this, there was the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets that Moses had brought down from the mountain inside of it. And on top of that, the lid was the mercy seat. And that's where on the Day of Atonement, they would sprinkle the blood. And I guess they must have just sprinkled blood in the place where the Ark of the Covenant was because at the time of Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant was not there in the temple. And that curtain represented a separation. Only one guy once a year could go behind that curtain and sprinkle that blood. One guy once a year. He was the high priest who was now standing as God between the people. He was representing God to the people and he went behind that curtain. And so when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain, there's an earthquake we're going to read in a minute, and that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And that represented the separation being gone. Now, as Hebrews tells us, we can go boldly into the throne of God. There is no longer separation. No longer does God say, stay away from me. You've got to be holy. And now we are holy by the work that Jesus did upon the cross. The Bible says that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In essence, we were made righteous by the blood of the lamb. And this is imputed righteousness so that the moment you ask for your sin to be forgiven, you are clean and you can now approach God. You can approach him directly, you yourself. Now there is one mediator between us and man, us and God. And that is the man, Jesus Christ, the Bible says. And that is when we know him, we can now go boldly before the throne because this veil was torn. The next thing that happened there, it says, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, beginning of verse 52, and the graves were opened. When Jesus died upon that cross, when he gave up his spirit, suddenly there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. I don't know, maybe it was an earthquake all around the world. But what we do know is that Caiaphas felt that earthquake the moment Jesus died, the high priest. The chief priests felt that earthquake. Pilate felt that earthquake. Herod felt that earthquake. Mary, as she stood there watching her son die, and John felt that. All of them felt the earthquake. It was so significant that at the moment he died that the earth shook. And then we get this little statement. It says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, which means died, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now notice the timing of this event. This didn't happen while Jesus was dead on the cross or in the grave. The graves were split open at the earthquake, but after his resurrection, there were some of the saints that were wandering around the streets of Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem saw, I think I saw Jeremiah. I think I saw Elijah. I think this is God's way of really showing them that he had done something significant and that these men that had been, something had changed from where they were now to the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't start walking around Jerusalem until after the resurrection. So when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, there are some saints who appear to many in the holy city, which would be Jerusalem. And so we pick it up in verse 54. And when the centurion of those with him who was guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things which happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And now we have the Roman centurion 
played by John Wayne in the greatest story ever told, by the way. And we have these men who crucified Jesus, Gentiles, making a confession of faith. I'm not saying they became believers, but they recognized this truly was the Son of God. And this was making a change. God had come to the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel had rejected him. And so God said, open up the highways and the byways and invite anybody who wants to come to come. It means the door was opened up to not just Israel, but to everybody, including Israel, but to everybody. Remember, the first thousands of people who were saved were, were Jewish people, were Israel. But Gentiles would be added in, and it shocked them when that happened, by the way. They had to all get together in Acts 15 and have a council. What are we going to do with these Gentiles? So many of them are saved. What are we going to do? We're going to make them a part of Judaism? Or are we going to lay no burdens on them? And they ended up saying that we're not going to lay any burdens on them, except that they would give to the poor. And Paul was upset with that. Paul said the very thing we were willing to do. In other words, they didn't have to say that. They didn't have to say we lay no further burdens on you except that you take care of the poor. Paul was like, they should have just said, we lay no burdens on you. As a Gentile believer in Christ, we are not bound at all to keep the law. We are set free from that. And so then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is an important verse for telling us what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was alive in the spirit. He had placed his spirit in the hands of God. And so the question is, and there are people that say that Jesus went to hell. That's one of the questions that we're asking today. Did Jesus go to hell and suffer for you and me? There are those that teach that Jesus went there to suffer because we had to have someone suffer for us. In other words, they say that the work on the cross was not enough. Jesus didn't complete the work there. Beside, I mean, he said it is finished, but it wasn't finished. And he had to go and suffer for us because we needed someone to suffer that penalty of hell for us. The Bible never teaches that. By the way, those who teach this thing are those that are part of the faith movement. The faith movement was founded by Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Creferal Dollar are involved in that today. Uh, Joel Osteen is kind of the faith movement light, and he will teach some of these things. This is a dangerous doctrine because it, it has to do with salvation and where our Savior died for us. But they teach a couple other things that are even more dangerous. First of all, the faith movement teaches that God wants you to be rich. And I think this is a direct connection to the tickling of the ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle your ears. They go, God wants you rich. And you go, amen, I want to be rich too. I receive that, brother. I want to be rich. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if anybody teaches godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if we are content where we are financially, and we know God takes care of us, right? God said, I'll take care of you. I'll give you your needs. God meets our needs. And God does exceedingly abundantly above that. But to say that someone who is not rich or who doesn't have a lot of money, you don't have faith, is a false teaching. They also teach that God never wants you sick. And if you are sick, then it is because you have a lack of faith. And I want to say, it takes faith to be healed. If you say, God, heal me. That's a step of faith. You're stepping out. You know that God can heal and you're stepping out and asking him. 
But it also takes faith to say, your will be done. And it also takes faith to say, Lord, I realize you're not going to heal me and I'm going to go through this illness and it may be the end of my life, but I trust you and I will serve you no matter what. Like the children in the, the children of Israel in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the furnace in Daniel, they said, God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to serve him. And that's how we approach sickness. We want to be delivered. We want to be healed. We ask God to heal us and God does heal today, but not everyone. That's God's choice. And they'll tell you when you're not healed, they'll shun people who are not healed because they'll tell them it is a lack of faith. You either have sin in your life or it is a lack of faith. And if it's a lack of faith, then you spot us because the guys who lowered the paralyzed man down, Jesus said to him, pick up your bed and walk. And he said, it was the faith of your friends that made you whole. It's not always our faith, but it's the faith of someone else. And so when someone prays for you and says you didn't have enough faith to be healed, well, they didn't have enough faith to heal you as well. And that is a false teaching as well. And maybe even more dangerous than that, they teach that you, they elevate us, people. They say that we are little gods with a small g, meaning I have the ability to speak things into existence and I'm better than I think I am because I belong to God. And, and if I'm a child of God, then I'm a God. And so we're a little God. So they elevate mankind. And I think we can see a lot of problems with that, right? But they also bring Jesus down as well. They de-elevate Jesus. And they say that Jesus was not God when he was born, but that he was a normal human who became God. So now they're saying that normal human, a normal human became God and people who are normal humans can become God. And all of these are false teachings. All of these are unbiblical. And for those of you who listen to the teachings from these people, from Joyce Myers or Joel Osteen or, or Kenneth Copeland, and you've been blessed by their studies, I understand that. I understand that God moves when people teach. But I would encourage you to look as to whether or not I am right about what these people are teaching. Because they are false teachings and they are dangerous and they fall in that category of lifting up teachers that will tickle our ears. And so we have the Apostles' Creed. So we're talking about Jesus, whether or not he went to hell, because all of them in the faith movement teach that Jesus died on the, on the cross, went to hell and suffered uh, the punishment of hell for us. And so we have the Apostles' Creed. You guys know the Apostles' Creed, right? A lot of you guys memorized it. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says something I want to point out. I want to read the Apostles' Creed to you. This was, um, by the way, it first appeared in 390 and then it became adopted by the church. And when you're looking for a church that believes in the scriptures, that believes things correctly, you want them to align themselves with what we find in the Apostles' Creed, okay? That doesn't mean it's the Word of God. It means this has been very well put together by the church. So listen to what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty. And there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen. By the way, 
The Apostles' Creed is a good creed. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.